remembering our interconnectedness with all other living beings, how they've been kind to us in this life and previous lives, and how we have felt very close to them, either in this life or our previous lives. Close in the way that parents and children feel close to each other. Then let's let arise in ourselves a kind heart, a wish to benefit them, and also a wisdom that sees clearly what the best way to benefit is. And of course we want to benefit others temporarily. Whatever the word is, temporarily. Anyway, in samsara. But we want to really be able to benefit them by leading them out of samsara. Because we may give them food or clothing or shelter or medicine in this life. And that cures their pain in this life. But due to afflictions and karma, they will have more pain later on. But if we are able to attain full enlightenment ourselves and then lead them to that state, then they will be free of all suffering altogether, forever. And so while we aid others on a temporal basis, let's really have our long-term goal to aim them on a far-reaching basis. And so for that reason, we're listening to teachings. And we're listening to teachings so that we can put them into practice, so that we can actualize them, so that we can attain enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. So take a moment and generate that motivation. Okay. So there's these two ways to benefit others. There's benefiting others in samsara, and there's benefiting others by leading them out of samsara, in the same way that there's two ways to benefit ourselves in samsara and getting ourselves out of samsara. And so to benefit ourselves and others in samsara is fine, you know, to remove physical suffering or the mental pain that we experience on a daily basis, that's certainly worthwhile and good and to be done. But to also realize when we do it that we're not solving the problem completely. Okay. So it's similar whether it's ourselves or others that are hungry. Eating food solves the problem, but it doesn't get rid of the problem of having a body that's going to get hungry again are having a body that gets old and sick and dies. Okay? And so, you know, to to really put the help in perspective and to see that a more long terming way to be a benefit to ourselves and others is first of all through understanding karma. Because when we understand the law of karma and its effects then we know how to create the causes for happiness and avoid the causes of suffering. And if we're able to explain that to others, then that empowers them with the information to decide whether they want to create the causes of happiness or the causes of suffering. We can't control them, what they do, but at least they have the ability then to think about these things. And... Then, of course, a a more far-reaching way to benefit even than that is to teach about emptiness because it's the wisdom that realizes emptiness 
it is the ultimate antidote to the ignorance that keeps us revolving in samsara. Okay? So that's why, you know, to really to teach emptiness, we have to understand it ourselves. It's not an easy thing to understand. If it were, we would have realized it already and would have been out of samsara a long, long time ago. Okay? So it's, it's not like a snap of the fingers and, you know, oh, everything's empty, let's get this realization and got that done and now let's get on with the rest of my life. You know, it's, it's not like that. It's an endeavor that really requires um, a lot of our life's energy. And... Uh, you know, and dedication and planting seeds in our mind again and again uh, by listening to teachings and contemplating them and studying and meditating on them. Okay. So last week we were talking about the nihilists. Remember our pals, the nihilists? Yeah, the ones who negated too much. So instead of just negating inherent existence, they negated all existence whatsoever and said nothing exists and so therefore negate cause and effect and uh, come into a lot of problems because of that. And then we started also talking about the absolutists, our other friends, the absolutists, who are the other extreme from the nihilists but think very similar to the nihilists at the same time. Okay? And so the absolutists who, you know, believe in inherent existence and there's a creator, you know, that created everything and manages everything. There's a soul. There's, you know, um, maybe even talking about predestination, you know. Uh, things are predestined. And so, you know, that whole way of reifying reality in an attempt to uh, make things quite secure. Yeah? They're inherently existent and this is the way they are. Okay? What's quite interesting, as I mentioned the predestination, is the, um, the great sages in ancient India, the whole idea of free will and predestination, it wasn't an issue for them. They never brought it up. I find that so interesting. You know, in the philosophical text, you don't have any discussion of it. Whereas in Western history, the whole discussion of free will and predestination is, um, you know, it's so pivotal in, in so much of our understanding. And my own, I'm expressing my own ideas here, um, is that if somebody asks the Buddha, uh, you know, are things predestined or is there free will, that that would be a question that the Buddha wouldn't respond to. Because when the Buddha was alive, there were certain questions that people asked him that he didn't respond to. And it's not because he didn't know the answers. It's because the, fra- the mental framework that they were in when they asked the questions was such that whatever answer he gave, they were going to misunderstand Okay, so it's like somebody who says, is this cloth yellow or red? Well, the cloth is green, yeah, but they're saying, is it yellow or red? Whatever you answer you give, they're not going to understand it properly, okay, because they're just not in that space. So, you know, when people ask the Buddha, is the universe finite or infinite? There are all these questions were asked within the perspective of inherent existence. So I think the question about predestination and free will, it's also asked, I think, within that same framework of inherent existence. Because when we talk about predestination, it means things are inherently existent, decided beforehand, and nothing you do can change it. Okay, so you're totally negating the law of cause and effect with predestination. Aren't you? You're saying there's no cause and effect. That's really the nihilistic extreme, isn't it? You know, there's no cause and effect. Everything's predestined. Whatever you do, it doesn't matter. 
Okay? Then, the other extreme is free will, and we think of free will as you can do anything you want, and again, it doesn't depend on causes and conditions. So, here we are again, you know, the two opposites, and they're both in the extreme of, you know, it doesn't depend on causes and conditions. You get what I mean? Because predestination, no need for causes and conditions, because it's all planned out by somebody else. Total free will, you can do anything you want to, yeah, at any time you want to, regardless of what you've done in the past, regardless of the conditions around you. That's also in defiance of the law of cause and effect, isn't it? So you see, the whole way that that question is being asked is an incorrect way. You can't give an answer to that, you know, because both parties are thinking there's no such thing as cause and effect. You know, I have total free will, which means I can start speaking Chinese right now, even though I've never studied it. And I can flap my arms and fly, even though there's no cause for me to be able to fly, because there's gravity. You know? Okay, so our idea of free will is, again, negating cause and condition. So it's one of those questions that's coming from a perspective of grasping as inherent existence, and if there's no inherent existence, then there's nothing. Okay? So you either have total free will or no ability to to do anything. Okay, very extreme. So in a Buddhist sense, you know, we wouldn't say there's total free will, we wouldn't say that things are predetermined. Neither one of those, because things depend on causes and conditions. Okay, so there's causes and conditions happening all the time. Hmm? And we're involved in that creation of causes and conditions. And causes and conditions are very complicated, complex, how they all come together to create things. And that mental factor of intention in our own mind, you know, steers our mind in different ways, you know. Well, it steers, but then there's different mental factors that choose the direction it goes in. If you have the intention but anger, you go that way. If you have intention and wisdom, you go this way. If you have intention and attachment, you go another way. Okay. So uh, all these things arise not due to one cause or one factor, but a whole multitude of very complex things coming together, some of them being the different mental factors in our mind, some of them being the external circumstances and, you know, what we've learned and what situation we're in. I may have the intention to speak Chinese in the next moment, but, you know, if I've never studied it and, uh, you know, I don't have clairvoyance, this is not going to happen. There's no causes and conditions for it. Okay. So then there's some other misconceptions, um, absolutist misconceptions that I thought to discuss simply because we have such a predisposition, I think, to to different kinds of absolutist ways of thinking. Okay. Um, And some of these ways uh, the Tibetans have had, too, or different people have had or have uh, even now. Now, one way is, uh, you know, when we think about Buddha nature, Okay, you have a text called Uttara Tantra, Gyulama in Tibetan, and it talks about Buddha nature, and it talks about there being a uh, Buddha replete with the 32 marks and the 80 signs of an enlightened being. And, you know, some people take this teaching very literally and say, we're already Buddhas. Okay? Yeah, the text said so. Yeah, here it is. It says that within me right now, there's there's a Buddha. Well, we have to know how to understand these texts because the text isn't designed to take that literally because you come up with some different point, difficult points because if we're already Buddhas and yet we have ignorance, then does that mean we're ignorant Buddhas? Yeah? So... 
we're, we're actually quite um, uh, foolish Buddhas, aren't we? So that, that doesn't make sense. So you can't say that there's a fully existent Buddha, you know, within us already. That text was designed to encourage us by talking about our potential, not saying that we're already Buddhist, but we just don't know it. Okay? I remember one time, it was so hilarious. Um, there was one very fat monk in a teaching, and he asked Lama Zopa about this, because he had been reading these texts, you know, this text, and said, Rinpoche, aren't we already Buddhas? And Rinpoche looked at this monk and said, are you pregnant? <laughs> and he said, no. And Rinpoche said, well, let's say you have the karma to, in the future, be born as a woman and to get pregnant when, in that next rebirth, as a woman. Does that mean that you're pregnant now? He said, I'm fat, but I'm not pregnant. <laughs> okay, so it's the same idea. We have the potential to become Buddha, but that doesn't mean that what we're going to become in the future, we are already. Okay? I think he was happy to be assured he wasn't pregnant. <laughs> Um, it would have been quite a scandal for the Sangha. Don't you think a monk getting pregnant? Oh, very bad news. Um, okay. So, okay, so understanding that teaching properly. Then, even with that, you know, even we say, okay, that we're not fully enlightened Buddhists already, but I have the Buddha potential. Okay? So there's one way of thinking in which we can reify our Buddha nature and make it into some absolute thing, something like a soul. You know, there's my... So we throw out the idea of soul, or at least the terminology, but then maybe we keep one part of the idea and we say, but there's my Buddha nature. Ultimately, there's part of me that is completely pure, completely untainted. It can never change. It can never be taken away from me. Because this is the way Buddha nature is described. And then you start thinking, oh, it's like an inherently existent soul. Isn't it? And this is really, it can be a trap for us. Yeah, if we don't understand Buddha nature properly. Okay? So don't think of the Buddha nature as, you know, again, some kind of self-existent soul or pure nature that, that is the essence of you-ness or the essence of meanness. Okay. Because actually there's two kinds of Buddha natures. One, which is the uh, natural Buddha nature, which is the emptiness of inherent existence of the mind. So right away, if emptiness is Buddha nature, forget having a soul, okay? Forget the reifications. And then the other um, kind of Buddha nature is called uh, transforming Buddha nature. And these are any factors that we have now that can be enhanced and increased and their continuum can exist in the mind of the Buddha. So, for example, our present compassion, okay, this compassion can be increased and enhanced and it's something that will continue on uh, and become, you know, a factor in, the mind, in our mind when we're Buddhas. Okay? So... That's something that's part of the transforming Buddha nature. And there's other things as well. Okay? But right away, if we see that, we see that's not inherently existent either. No. Because a mental factor of compassion exists by being merely labeled. It has causes and conditions. It doesn't exist independent of other factors. Okay? But sometimes, I'm saying this because sometimes if we just hear Buddha nature... And it's clear and pure and it can never be, you know, taken away and everything. We so easily create the idea of a soul or a, a big self. Okay, so should be careful about that one. Okay, very important to, to, at the same time that we have the confidence in having Buddha nature, that we also realize things aren't inherently existent. And that's why... Buddha nature is possible because 
if there were a self or a soul that was independent of everything else, then Buddha nature would be impossible because Buddhahood would be impossible because if there's a self or a soul that doesn't depend on anything else, how, how is that going to change to become the mind of a Buddha? Impossible. Can't be affected by causes and conditions. Okay? So, okay. So then another absolutist idea that we fall in, into is also sometimes with the, this, the, the, the New Age kind of talk, your higher self. You know, and I hear people say that, and I want to say, what's the definition of a higher self? You know, what do you mean by a higher self? Because I'm never quite clear what what that means. What, is, what does a higher self mean? Any of you know? <laughs> I, I, I never quite get it. Well, some people talk about a cosmic mind, okay, that we're all part of one universal mind. Or um, uh, another thing that's similar to that is that there is some kind of cosmic substance that we all came out of, and then enlightenment is you all dissolve back into this cosmic substance. So you find these kind of ideas not only in, in New Age things on Hollywood Boulevard, but or Sunset Boulevard, um, but you also find them in, like, let's say, the Samkhya uh, uh, notions. In ancient India, there was a philosophical school called Samkhya, and they said that there was like a primal substance, and everything came out of that substance and then dissolves back into that substance. Okay? So it's very easy to think like that, isn't it? You know, even in a theistic viewpoint, you could define God as some kind of cosmic energy from which we all come out, and then we all dissolve back in. But, you know, if you kind of um, subject those theories to, to reasoning, it, it becomes very difficult to really hold them and have them make sense. Because okay. if there's one cosmic substance that encompasses everything that is independent and exists by its own nature, then such a thing would be permanent because it's independent of other factors, things that don't depend on causes and conditions, things that don't depend on other factors are permanent. So if you have some kind of permanent all-encompassing cosmic substance, then how can it change to produce something? So how can manifestations come out of it? How can everything dissolve back into it? Because if it's inherently existent, then it's independent of other factors, which means it's permanent, which means it can't change. Okay? So do you, do you follow the, the line of reasoning here? Yeah. So being permanent isn't the meaning of being inherently existent. It's not as somebody says, what's inherent existence, and you say permanence. It's, that's not the meaning of inherent existence. But the thing is, if things were inherently existing, then they would have to be permanent and unchanging because they would be independent of other factors. Okay, you with me? Okay, so that notion of a cosmic substance, one universal mind, you know, one universal mind sounds very wonderful until it comes down to who does this belong to, you know, and we're all one, we're all part of this one universal mind. Well, that's great, you know, give me your bank account because we're all one. You know, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. Okay? Okay. Then, okay, cosmic energy, one universal mind. Okay, so what we're getting to in this discussion is that emptiness, okay, the ultimate mode of existence, is 
what's called a non-affirming negation. Okay? Which means that it is, it's a negation. It is an absence of something. And in that absence, nothing else whatsoever is being affirmed. Okay? So we have to understand here, let's backtrack a little bit, have a little bit of a kind of philosophy that we have. There's, there's positive phenomena, positive phenomena, and then there's negations, okay, which are another type of phenomena. Positive phenomena are like the piece of paper, the recorder, the telephone, the cup, the apple, the bell, okay, you and me in the room and the trees and the sky and all these kinds of things. Okay, so they're positive. There's something there. Yeah. Negations are absences. Yeah, it's the lack of something. Okay, so the way you apprehend, you know, positive phenomena and the way you ha apprehend the negations, negation phenomena, are different. Yeah. Because a positive phenomena has all these characteristics that are, you know, changing and so on and so forth. And the negation is just a very simple absence. Now, there's some, okay, so that's the first division into positive phenomena or affirmations and then negations, which are also, also phenomena. Within the category of negations, there's two kinds. One are affirming negations, and one are non-affirming negations. Okay. Affirming negation is when you're negating one thing and at the same time implying something else. Okay. So the, fat, the, the one they always give in the text is, you know, the fat devadatta. That's a name like Joe. Why don't we use just Joe, okay? Fat Joe doesn't eat during the day. Okay? What does that imply? He eats at night because he's fat. Okay? So fat Joe doesn't eat during the day. Yeah. It's negating eating during the day, but it's implying eating at night. Okay? Or if we say um, the kitchen without any chairs in it. That's affirming kitchen. It's negating chairs, but it's affirming kitchen, isn't it? Okay. Or the the um, the hillless plateau. The hillless plateau. You're negating hills, but you're affirming plateau. Okay. So all those are are. Um, implicative negations or, or affirming negations. A non-affirming negation is just there's no elephant in this room. Okay? There's no elephant. So you're not affirming anything. You're just saying no elephant. So in the same way, when we talk about the emptiness of inherent existence, we are simply negating inherent existence and nothing else is being affirmed at that time. Okay? So it's not like a cosmic substance that is empty of inherent existence. Uh-uh. It's just there's no inherent existence. Okay. And remember, when we say no inherent existence, we aren't saying no existence. Okay? We well, are not saying that. Things exist. But we're saying no inherent existence. So when somebody perceives emptiness directly, it's the absence of inherent existence. And at the time that person is meditating on emptiness, they're seeing the emptiness of inherent existence of their own mind. So the mind is seeing its own ultimate nature, which is a lack of independent existence. And so in that meditative equipoise, where there's the direct perception of this ultimate reality, it's said to be like water mixed in water in the sense that 
the mind and the object. Emptiness or fused. There's not a feeling like there's a mind here that's perceiving its emptiness over here. Okay? And emptiness is a non-affirming negation. So when perceiving it, you're just perceiving that absence of inherent existence which has never existed at all. It's the nature of reality. And you're perceiving it. And because it's that kind of negation, it's being perceived in a non-dual way. And so that's why they say at that time, there's no experience of subject and object. Okay? It's like they've been fused. Okay. So then you can see that if the ultimate nature is this non-affirming negation, then any time we try and make an ultimate nature that has some substance there, that is something, whether it's, you know, my Buddha nature that's always there, you know, some kind of positive phenomena that I'm grasping onto that's pure, or a cosmic mind or a universal substance or a soul or a higher self or a creator or whatever it it is, you can see that none of those things are non-affirming negations. They're all something positive, you know, positive phenomena that are being positive you know, that are being posited as the ultimate truth. And, you know, and whenever you have a positive phenomenon like that, it's perceived dualistically. And besides, those kind of positive phenomena don't exist, so difficult to perceive them. Of course, our mind can always imagine them and conceptualize them and think that we're perceiving them. You know, I mean, this is the thing. Our mind is so creative that we can develop a whole philosophy and then meditate on it and have these experiences and think that we're perceiving, you know, whatever it is that we're believing in, but we're not, okay, because such a thing doesn't exist. But we can, our mind can create it and conceptualize it and believe it and, uh, you know, confuse an experience of our conceptualization with reality. And we do this all the time, don't we? You know? It's, it's, it's like when you fall in love. This person's wonderful and you think you're perceiving the true depth of reality of this person. That they have absolutely no faults and they're going to make you everlastingly happy. And we perceive that and we believe it and it's all rubbish. Yeah? So, so you know, the thing is that we need to have some doubts about what we perceive. And this is where the value of using reasoning comes in, because we, we challenge ourselves, you know. Okay, I feel this way, but often we say feel when we mean think or conceptualize, you know. I feel this, but does that have anything to do with reality? You know? Like when we say, I feel you're criticizing me. Do you feel that somebody criticizes you? No, you think somebody's criticizing you. Feeling is an emotional state. You don't feel somebody's criticizing you. You think that. You're conceptualizing it. But then because we feel it, we think it must be reality. They're really criticizing me. Yeah, and then we get all anxious, and we get upset, and we retaliate, and blah, 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 because I feel like they're criticizing me. And, you know, we're just making, our mind's making it all up, isn't it? And we've all been through this, haven't we? Yeah, we put ourselves through hell. You know, who needs a devil? Our mind does it to itself. I mean, this is, this is, why in Buddhism, you know, there's no external devil. The biggest, you know, evil force is self-casting ignorance and self-centered thought. Yeah, nobody external can harm us nearly as much as our own ignorance does. Yeah. There's a beautiful thing in Shantideva, um, I forget which chapter it's in, where he talks about 
how external enemies really can't harm us very much. You know, the worst they can do is kill us. The absolute worst that, it, that an external enemy can do. But an external enemy cannot make you take a lower rebirth. Yeah? And an external enemy, you know, they make you lose your life, but they can't make you, can't, they can't prevent you from becoming liberated or enlightened. They can't send you to a lower realm. They can't make you create negative karma. But the thing that does all that, that's the ignorance and the self-centered thought. And so they're much worse than any uh, external enemy. I find that the, these verses in Shantideva are very, very moving, you know. Because when you really think about it, it's so true. You know, people criticize us, people do this, even they beat us. It's, you know, it's not, it's nothing compared to what our own afflictions do to us. Really, nothing. Okay, but that's going, getting sidetracked. Let's come back here. Okay, now, we're going to talk about objects. There's two kind of negated objects, or objects of negation, okay? There's objects that are negated by the path and objects that are negated by reasoning. Okay? The objects negated by the path, what that means is things that are removed by practicing the path. Okay? They're negated by the path in the sense that they are removed by practicing the path. So that could be ignorance, anger, attachment, clinging, grasping. Okay? But particularly ignorance, the self-grasping ignorance. That's the chief object that's negated by the path, okay? And ignorance exists, and by practicing the path, you cut the root of the the ignorance and make it so ignorance ceases to exist, okay? Then there's the object negated by reasoning, and this is inherent existence, okay? Inherent existence is what ignorance grasps. It's the referent object, the apprehended object of ignorance. Okay? So it's what ignorance grasps. But while ignorance exists, inherent existence does not exist. Okay? So it's negated by reasoning. And here reasoning doesn't just mean, you know, intellectual, philosophical, blah, blah. It means deep probing and uh, deep investigation into the nature of reality. And that inherent existence is negated by reasoning in the sense that reasoning shows that inherent existence is impossible. In other words, for something to exist from its own side, by its own nature, under its own power, independent of anything else, is an impossible mode of existence. Okay? So, we have the object negated by the path, which is ignorant. The object negated by reasoning, which is inherent existence. Ignorance apprehends inherent existence. Ignorance exists, inherent existence does not, and it never has. So when we're meditating on emptiness and generating the wisdom that realizes emptiness, okay, that wisdom is, it's not removing inherent existence because inherent existence never existed. It's just perceiving that it's never existed. But then the ignorance actively eliminates the, um, I mean, the wisdom actively eliminates the ignorance. Okay? You with me? So this is an important point because otherwise we think, oh, you apprehend emptiness and your wisdom 
destroys inherent existence and makes everything empty of inherent existence so that your wisdom changes the nature of phenomena. Our wisdom does not change the nature of phenomena. It just perceives it. What gets changed is the ignorance and all the afflictions that are based on that ignorance. Okay? Okay. Now... There's a, a very cute thing that Jay Ramachay brings up here. Okay. So we might wonder, why do you need so many words to prove that something like inherent existence, which doesn't exist, why do you need so many words to prove it doesn't exist? You know, if it doesn't exist, it doesn't exist. Why do we need so much reasoning and so many words? And on the other hand, if things were inherently existent, it exists, and so leave it alone. Okay, but why do we need so much reasoning, so many words, all these complicated theories, all these vocabulary words to negate something that doesn't even exist to start with? You know, that question could come in the mind. That may come in the mind. Yeah, yeah, it's come in the mind, hasn't it? Yeah. Why do I need all these words? Prove that something that doesn't exist doesn't exist. Okay. Well, look at it this way. If you're a little kid and you believe in a boogeyman, okay, and you're afraid the boogeyman's going to come and get you, there's no such thing as a boogeyman, is there? But there's an aspect of your mind that's grasping at the existence of a boogeyman. And that grasping at at the existence of a boogeyman is causing you a lot of suffering because there's no boogeyman that you think there is. So you need the reasoning and the words and so on to explain to the child that there's no such thing as a boogeyman. And a boogeyman's an impossible thing. And then when the child realizes, oh, there's never been a boogeyman to start with, then the kid's mind relaxes, it's so happy, because the mind that's grasped at the existence of a boogeyman has been eliminated, even though there was no boogeyman to eliminate. Okay. So it's the same way here. Things have never existed inherently. But our mind, which thinks they do, causes us so much suffering because we make everything so concrete, you know? And then we start imputing meaning on things that don't have that meaning and we get so emotional about things that have nothing to do with anything and we suffer a great deal because of this grasping at inherent existence. Okay? So that's why we need all these words and concepts. Okay. Now, let's talk about ignorance. There's two general kinds of ignorance. There's one that's the ignorance that doesn't understand karma and its effects. Okay, and then the second is the ignorance that doesn't um, understand the ultimate nature. When we talk about the root of cyclic existence, okay, the root of cyclic existence is the ignorance that doesn't understand the ultimate nature. It's not the ignorance that doesn't understand causes and, uh, cause and, and effect. Okay, the ignorance that doesn't understand karma and its effects. That ignorance is what makes us create negative karma that has sent us to the lower rebirth. Okay? But that ignorance isn't all the time present. Yeah? And it, uh, you know, it's not the, the root of cyclic existence. The root of cyclic existence is the mind that doesn't understand that things are dependent, but instead thinks things exist under their own power and within all the things you know we, we think everything exists under its own power inherently 
But within that, the biggest thing that, that we grasp at as existing under its own power is da 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 me. Okay? And so we grasp at the I as, you know, inherently existent. And then that's just, you know, a setup for the arrogance and the jealousy and everything else that follows after that. Okay? So the ignorance that doesn't understand the ultimate nature, the different Buddhist philosophical tenet systems have different views about what this ignorance is. Some say it's uh, just like an unknowing, a lack of knowledge, okay? The Prasangika Madhyamakas, the middle way view, they don't say it's just a lack of knowledge. They say it's an active misconception, okay? So you're not just spaced out, but you're actively holding the opposite of how things actually exist. Okay, so so that's one way in which, you know, the, the other philosophical tenet systems, you know, some of them anyway, how they differ from the Manyamakas. And then another way is that some of them, the other philosophical systems, say that the real root of the problem is grasping at a self-sufficient, substantially existent person. Okay, from the view of the Madhyamakas, the Prasangika Madhyamakas in specific, that's not the big problem. Yeah, the problem is grasping at the inherent existence, not only of the person, but of everything. Okay, so they say the Prasangikas have a much broader view of what ignorance is. You know, it's not just of the person, it's of the person and all phenomena, and it's not just of, you know, self-sufficient, substantially existent, but it's a much deeper way of things existing inherently. So how that ignorance is is looked at is, is different. Now, before we get into what is the object of negation that that ignorance hold on to when things exist. In other words, what is inherent existence? Let's talk a little bit about what is not the negated object, because there's or the object of negation, because there's a lot of confusion about this. Okay. So, for example, there's one quote in Aryadeva's 400 that says, "Conceptuality sees, and one is bound." It is to be stopped here. Now, when you hear that kind of quote, conceptuality sees, conceptuality apprehends, and one is bound in samsara, and it is to be stopped here. If you don't understand that properly, you start to think that all conceptuality binds us. Okay? And that all conceptuality is ignorance. And that what you're supposed to remove by the path is all conceptuality. Yeah? Now, that's not exactly correct. Yeah? Because... We're talking about a specific kind of conceptuality. And here conceptuality can mean grasping. Okay? We're talking about the the grasping at inherent existence or the conception of inherent existence. Okay? That's the one that's the root of cyclic existence. Yeah. Conceptualizing about other things doesn't cause us to create karma necessarily and be born in lower rebirths and not, you know, it's not the root of samsara. My thinking about a lemon, you know, that thought isn't going to create the cause for me to be born in samsara. 
okay? It's not something that I can keep on, you know, if I'm going to perceive the ultimate nature of reality, I have to get on, get beyond thinking about lemons, okay, or oranges or grapefruit. But thinking about, you know, there's a lemon, there's grapefruit, you know, that's not, that conception alone isn't causing me to create karma which implants on the consciousness, which makes me take rebirth. Okay? You get it? You get it? And the reason that this is important is because if we misunderstand and we think all conceptuality is the root of cyclic existence, then we start to think, well, the way to be liberated is just don't think about anything. And here's where you get the idea of blank-minded meditation. Yeah, you just empty your mind of all thoughts and meditate without an object and a blank mind. Okay? And there are people that advocate that kind of thing. But you see, that kind of meditation is leaving the grasping at inherent existence very happy and content and untouched. Because the grasping at inherent existence may not be active when you're just meditating on nothingness. It may not be manifest and active, but it has not been eliminated and discontinued. So when you come out of that meditation, the mind continues to grasp at inherent existence. And then when you grasp at inherent existence, then we get angry and arrogant and jealous and resentful and we create karma and that creates rebirth. Okay? Yeah? This is, this is an important point and Jay Rinpoche really emphasized it so much that it's not just a thing of eliminating conceptions because if all conceptions were the source of cyclic existence then we shouldn't even be having a teaching right now. Because teaching involves conceptualization, doesn't it? Whenever you have language, there's concepts. I'm having concepts teaching. You're having concepts listening and understanding. If all conceptualization is the root of samsara and makes us create negative karma and keeps us bound, then we shouldn't even have teachings about the ultimate nature. That's kind of ridiculous, isn't it? That's totally ridiculous. So it isn't... Now, it's true that to become a Buddha, we need to go beyond all conceptualization. Okay? A Buddha doesn't have any conceptual mind. However, to become a Buddha, we need to learn how to think clearly and how to use conceptuality so that it benefits us. And so one way that we use conceptuality in a beneficial way is by listening to teachings. And then by thinking about those teachings and understanding them. Okay. Otherwise, if we just say, oh, all conception is the root of cyclic existence, then even thinking about the Buddha is, the, you know, keeping us bound in samsara and making us, you know, take rebirth. And that's, that's not so. Okay. Okay, so, um, okay, so not all conceptuality is the root of cyclic existence. Okay. So even though, like I said, we need to go beyond it, it's not the root of cyclic existence, and it's not the ignorance that we're trying to eliminate here. Um, so similarly, another thing that isn't the object of negation is the wrong objects that we learn by uh, studying wrong psychologies and wrong philosophies. Okay? Because what, when we, but you might say, but they're, they're, they're the object of the acquired ignorance. Because remember, there's two levels of ignorance. There's the innate ignorance and the acquired ignorance. And so the acquired ignorance grasps at, like, cosmic substance and one universal mind and, you know, all kinds of theories and we can have an intellectual idea of, um, 
of inherent existence or we can grasp at a soul and all those things. So those things are the objects of the acquired ignorance because we learn that by studying some wrong philosophy or psychology in this lifetime and then incorrectly believing it. So those things that we learned that are the objects of the acquired ignorance, they're not the object of negation of the ignorance that's the root of, of samsara. Okay? Now, you can have inherent existence that's the objects of an acquired uh, ignorance because people can dream, you know, people have dreamed up philosophies about why things are inherently existent. But we're not just in negating inherent existence on the level of philosophy, okay? We're trying to look at that deep-rooted, innate ignorance that's been with us from the beginningless time that colors everything that we perceive and see what that ignorance apprehends. And that inherent existence is the object of negation. Okay, not just the inherent existence of the acquired ignorance and not just souls and selves and creators and things like that. Now, while it is true that if we're going to meditate on emptiness and try and understand what the object of negation of the innate ignorance is, to understand that, we have to clear away all the proliferation of all these other wrong objects that we're grasping onto. Okay? Because if we're believing in a soul and a creator and a universal substance and all this kind of stuff, we're never going to be able to, to, you know, get any idea about inherent existence. And so we're never going to be able to negate it. Okay? So we have to peel away a lot of our wrong conceptions. And, you know, some of the philosophy and the reasoning process that we use is directed against uh, objects of our acquired ignorance. Okay? And that's because we've got to get rid of those before you can see the real deep ignorance. It's like, you know, it's like your carpet may be stained, but as long as you have boxes filling the room, you can't even see the stains on the carpet. So you've got to get rid of the clutter in your room so you could at least see the stains on the carpet and then start to eliminate the stains on the carpet. But as long as there's boxes in the room, you can't see it. Okay? So it's the same idea. So that's why sometimes when we're negating this and that and doing debates and stuff like that, it's we're trying to get rid of these, these objects of the acquired ignorance. But they are not the real object that is the object of negation when we're meditating on emptiness. Okay? Because the object of negation is inherent existence. Okay? It's not um, uh, a permanent monolithic soul. It's not a self-sufficient, substantially existent person. It's inherent existence. Okay. So, we have time for one or two questions. Yeah? Uh, Uh You were talking about the uh, the elaboration or Elaborations or fabrications? You were talking about specifically in reference to uh, the four elaborations? The four distorted conceptions. You you use the word elaborate, the word elaborate. We're trying to figure out. You have to tell me what the connection is. What? Uh, It was, one of them was inherent existence, and then it was. the elaboration that uh, these subjects and objects. Oh, reach. okay, okay, yeah. So those elaborations. So, so um, uh, seeing subject and object is one elaboration. Seeing inherent existence is another elaboration. 
um, seeing con- uh, conventional phenomena, seeing difference. So my question is, why why is it translated as elaboration? Because we look up the word elaboration, and it just kind of sets that spot out that you are going into more detail than it is necessary. Right. Okay. So it's not that you are necessarily exaggerating or you're putting something on that's okay. not actually there. You're just getting more into detail of what is there. Okay. So it would sound like from what you explained that you're actually putting extra things on the aren't there. Okay. But the word elaboration doesn't Okay. So, so the word elaboration, when we talk about the elaboration of inherent existence, you, you looked up elaboration and it sounds like elaboration is going into a lot of detail about something. Okay. Not that you're putting something on there that isn't there. Um, so this may be a difficulty in choosing the term elaboration. Maybe the word uh, fabrication is better. Because fabrication of true existence for putting something on that isn't there. But elaboration, there's something, I don't know, because I like the the word elaboration in the sense that, you know, you elaborate things and you make curly cues and you make all this kind of complexity that isn't at all necessary or applicable. Okay? So... uh, in the sense of elaborations being unnecessary or inapplicable. Okay? Inherent existence is like that. Grasping onto inherent existence is like that. Okay? But here, you know, fab, um, elaboration. It, mean, it means fabrication, sometimes translated as fabrication, sometimes translated as proliferation. I like the term proliferation, too, because proliferation, you know, we always think nuclear proliferation. All these things are coming out that, again, are totally useless and irrelevant and damaging and don't need to be there at all, and you can clear them away. Okay? What's the difference between Buddha nature and Buddha potential? They're the same thing. Those terms are referred to the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, comment, uh, we have many of them still so in past lives. Lots of ignorance. Um, I want to speak for myself. But we're taught ignorance. You were talking about how uh, we're using many words to explain why Buddha is not there. But we use many words to uh, that it doesn't just, the ignorance doesn't just come from past life. It comes because of the conditioning in this life. You know, we're taught Santa Claus. We're taught racism. We're taught sexism. We're taught to have low self-esteem. You know, we're taught all sorts of things that are very damaging to us. And, um, yeah, we're, we're actually taught a lot of ignorance. And we are so, we have so much fear of not fitting in. And the world around us seems so real that what people teach us, we believe. You know? And when we're kids, we didn't know any better. But I think the nice thing about growing up is we can take out some of those things that we learned as kids and start investigating. Are they true or aren't they? And if they aren't true, throw them out. Because you're right, we are taught a lot of ignorance. Yeah. So just even on a conceptual level of acquired ignorance, we have a lot to undo. It's not only my generation. It's mm-hmm. not only this life. Oh, no, it's just society. Yeah. 
Yeah, we pass it on. We, as a society, we pass on our collective ignorance. And the same way, I mean, we pass on some wisdom to the next generation, but we also pass on some ignorance, too. Yeah. But everybody's doing the best they can, and that's why we don't take refuge in samsaric beings, because they're under the influence of ignorance. And if we take refuge in them, and, you know, then that's what's going to happen. We're going to learn all sorts of incorrect stuff. So that's why when we're talking about taking refuge in Buddha Dharma Sangha, it's not just, you know, I believe. It's like really investigating, you know, what is the Dharma? What is this true cessation? And what is the path to that cessation? And what are we, what's the ignorance we're trying to eliminate? And then when we take refuge, we're not just saying I believe in Buddha Dharma Sangha, but we're taking out our understanding of the Dharma and applying it to the situation that we're in. Yeah. We take refuge in the Dharma. It means that we use the Dharma in our life. It doesn't mean we sit there and pray, Dharma, Buddha, Sangha, save me, you know, do something. It means we think about the teachings and use them in our lives. Okay?